It is wonderful to be here in the house of the Lord with you this morning, and before we jump into the passage before us, I thought it might be helpful to introduce myself, take a moment for those of you who may not know exactly who I am or to have seen me in passing, to uh, just share who I am. And I'd also like to thank you for the opportunity uh, to share from the Word of God this morning. Um, as you may know, my name is Eric Herb Jr. I was born and raised in this church family. I had the privilege and blessing to sit under the teaching and the instruction of many of you, uh, whether it be in Sunday school as a young child or in youth fellowship or in our week-to-week worship services. And for that, I thank God and I thank you for your service in my life and faithfulness in teaching the Word of God by instruction and by action. Through the faithfulness of my parents, the Holy Spirit opened my eyes to my sin problem and my need for a Savior at a young age. And ever since, I have been striving to honor God and be faithful to Him in my Christian walk. Uh, College was a time where I believe God really pushed my heart for ministry. I attended both Lancaster Bible College and Thaddeus Stevens College uh, with the goal to do tent-making missions. And tent-making missions is a form of ministry in which one works full-time in a day-to-day job to support their needs. And outside of work and even within their job, a tent-making missionary performs ministerial um, responsibilities, such as being a church planter. So I went to Lancaster Bible College to study pre-seminary to better equip my life and my preparation as a church planter. And I also attended Thaddeus Stevens, and that is where I learned graphic design. And graphic design is an occupation that can work well with tent making as it's very flexible with location and it can be free with time constraints. So these years in college are where God truly opened my heart to serve. And by God's grace, he has given me an opportunity to use the education I had learned in both colleges and apply them here to service in the the, uh, Lebanon Bible Fellowship Church. And while I thought the path was leading elsewhere, In my preparation for service, the idea, the centrality of service has always remained at the core. And what I have studied has been God's, what I have been studying in in my college years has been God's sovereign hand in preparing me to presently serve here. Since February of last year, I've I've been working part-time at the church as his secretary to take over Pastor Brandt's role upon his leaving. And what I have come to realize in in my day-to-day job here is that much of what I've been learning in college in my time in a graphics agency that I worked for for about a year has been incredibly helpful, and it's almost been um, very much preparatory to my job responsibilities here at church. It's almost been cookie-cutter shaped into what I'm doing here. And I have now been working full-time for about two months, and I've felt the call to the pastorate, and by God's guidance and by His grace, He has opened my eyes to this calling, and I seek to serve him in any capacity he has for me. God's sovereign plan is good, and I thank him for his guidance in my life. This past summer, I had the humble opportunity to teach one of the Sunday School Bible electives offered to the congregation. And for this teaching engagement, I I chose to speak on the Sermon on the Mount as it's recorded in Matthew chapter 5 through 7. And for those of you who are in that class, you may or may not remember that we didn't get quite through the entire Sermon on the Mount. We stopped about halfway through chapter 7. And I thought for this morning, as I have an opportunity to preach, I thought it may be helpful and advantageous to use this time to continue 
in the study of the Sermon on the Mount. So we are going to pick up where I left off, which I believe is a very, very well-known couple of verses. But before we jump into the passage, I want to pose a question. A question. And the question is this. Have you ever been in a situation where the path before you did not lead to the outcome you desired? Have you ever been in a situation where the path before you did not lead to the outcome that you desired? When I uh, went to Thaddeus Stevens College, um, one of our areas of study in graphic design is photography. And I had a professor who was really, really big into photography, and he was really big into wildlife photography. So a lot of the real-life experience that we got, a lot of the experience that we learned, was out in nature, taking images of animals, trees, plants, you name it, we had to take a picture of it. And during one of these particular trips, we, we as a class went to Middle Creek, which is a wildlife management area pretty, pretty close to here, and we had a list of criteria for our assignment of which we had to take pictures. And it was our goal to capture in photography all the items before the day was completely over. So we started walking uh, through the trail as a class, and eventually the class naturally, we, we started to spread out as we sought after different uh, items to take pictures of. And whenever we went on these trips, I kind of like to venture off by myself because you could typically find more unique items, right? When you're by yourself, no one is clustered around you uh, to take a picture of the same objects. Your picture of a tree wouldn't be the same tree as 20 other students. Everything was more unique, so I liked venturing. However, I always made sure I could at least hear my peers from a distance, even if I could not quite see them. So in this particular situation, in this particular trip, I ventured off by myself and I started to look for these items to photograph. However, I got distracted very quickly because what happened next was I thought was pretty spectacular and I thought it would be a great opportunity. I was walking out and about and I saw a deer jump up, right, and run off a little bit and I thought I saw it pause in the distance. And at that moment, I was faced with a choice. On one hand, you know, I could mosey, mosey along with the group and kind of stay with the group and not get lost, or I could chase after this deer and take a picture of this deer. And a deer definitely was not on our list, and that's, that's pretty extreme to get a picture of, but think of the honor, think of the, the bragging rights, if you will, of capturing the image of a deer. My professor would be proud, my classmates would probably be jealous, and so what do you think I did? I went after that deer, and I went, went after it hard. And I journeyed far off the path to chase down this animal, and about a half hour later, I was very unsuccessful. I didn't see it again. And not only was I unsuccessful, but I was extremely, extremely lost. I, I was lost to the point where I couldn't hear the group anymore, I couldn't find the path, and it was starting to get dark, and it was time for us to leave in about another half hour or so and head back to college. So I tell you that story simply for the fact that the road that I thought would lead to glory only led to shame. The path I followed did not lead to the outcome that I had desired. Well, this morning, Christ warns the multitude of making a similar decision. This decision, however, if chosen unwisely, has much greater consequences than the outcome I myself experienced during this class project. Look with me in your Bibles at our passage this morning once again. We'll read it again. I'll read it again. Matthew 7, verses 13 through 14. It reads this way. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. 
Our theme for this morning is that Christ presents a contrast between true and false avenues unto eternal life. Christ presents a contrast between true and false avenues unto eternal life. We begin with the authority of Christ displayed. Right? Christ commands those listening to come into heaven by the correct avenue. Look with me at verse 13 at the beginning. It says, enter by the narrow gate. This is a command. This is an authoritative warning. The authority of Christ is a central theme throughout the Sermon on the Mount. We don't have time to look back in, in the previous chapters, but throughout these three, the, the two chapters um, that, fought, that, fought, that um, begin this one, we see that Christ extraordinarily speaks with the power of God. In the beginning of chapter 5, he declares his children to be in favor with God with the Beatitudes. At the end of chapter 5, he declares that perfection is needed to enter the kingdom of God. And his authority is so potent throughout this whole sermon that notice with me the reaction of the crowds at the end of chapter 7. Look with me at verses 28 and 29. It reads, And when Jesus finished these sayings, so this is at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, and when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes, as one who had authority. With this same power, with this same dominion in speech, Christ commands and warns his audience to choose the right path. There is only one entrance into eternal life that is offered to mankind, and that entrance is the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a very powerful and authoritative command from Jesus. But before we get into the detail behind this statement, I want you to notice the imagery here. It's very clear, it's very noticeable to see, but Christ paints a picture of a gate. He says, enter by the narrow gate. And we see the word gate used two more times in the two verses before us. So the first question I have is, what is a gate? Or more specifically, what is the purpose? What is the purpose of a gate? All right. A gate is a strong barred door made to keep individuals out. It is meant to be an entrance by invitation only. It acts as a barrier. So why this picture of a gate? Why is a barrier a necessary image? Why doesn't Christ say, enter by the walkway or enter by the staircase, something that doesn't have a blockade? Well, I think the answer is that our sin corrupts and divides us from God. Because we have transgressed the will and law of God, we are separated. There must be a barrier. However, God invites sinners, rebels of God, to enter into life by faith in the shed blood of his Son on the cross. And that is why the image of a gate is used. Sin separates, yet Christ justly invites us into his kingdom if we will take the narrow gate. Christ, with the authority he has as God, declares that there is only one true entrance into the kingdom, a kingdom that we will analyze deeper as we approach the end of this passage. Moving along in the, the passage before us, we see that Christ follows this command with two contrasting reasons. Look with me at the next phrase in verse 13. It says, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And this word for, it's very interesting because it's, it's repeated again at the beginning of verse 14. It says, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. The word for acts as a support of why one should enter by the narrow gate. These prepositions give reason to the warning. They present the warning by providing a contrast. 
First, one should enter the correct path because the roomy way, the way of comfort, is unable to lead to life. Verse 13 says, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. The verse first tells us that the gate is vast, it is very broad. It says, for the gate is wide. The literal meaning here, the picture here, is a, is a wide road. It's a street. It's a broad way. Many times this word used in scriptures, it's translated as the streets, right? In the streets. And why is it important that Christ communicates that this entrance is very wide, like a street? What does it communicate about this particular route? Well, first, this gate is broad to accommodate the many. Look with me again at the end of verse 13. It says, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And here it is. And those who enter by it are many. Many seek eternal life. How many people do we know that have their minds set on heaven? No one likes thinking of the idea that one day we will die and go to eternal damnation in hell. It's not pleasant. People people understand the concept of life after death. And many seek to end up in heaven, no matter how skewed that understanding of heaven may be. Everyone likes the idea of life after death and pleasant life after death. And as we will see in a second, Christians, those who seek and find the true way unto life, are a minority. The majority of those seeking eternal life choose the wrong means. Believers should not be surprised when they see the greater segment of society choosing false ways unto salvation. When we look at the world and see thousands of religions and views all professing to lead to some sort of afterlife, enlightenment, or heaven, we should not be shocked. We should not be shocked at all. Jesus tells us that many seek eternal life, but use, they use the wrong route. They use the wrong path and the wrong gate. But I'd like to ask the question, why? What's so enticing about pursuing this larger gate? Well, I think it's because a wide gate is easily, fi- is easily found. It's very, it's very inviting. Um, I did some research, and uh, a very large gate can be seen from afar. Um, the tallest gate in the world, or the tallest gateway in the world, is found in India, and its name is the Bulan Darwaza. Bulan Darwaza. It's about 175 feet tall. And to give you a comparison, uh, the Storm Runner at Hershey Park, that's about 150 feet tall. So the Storm Runner is about 25 feet shorter than this largest gateway in the world. And if you look up pictures of the Bulan Darwaza, it's truly a magnificent piece of architecture. And what's also kind of cool about it, it sits on top of this this pretty large hill, um, and it enters into this city, and you can see it towering over its landscape. And if I were to visit India, right, and I'm in that, that area, and I saw this massive gateway from a distance, my natural reaction would be to go check that out. The broad gate is very attractive, and many are deceived into entering by it. As we continue to look at verse 13, we see that the path or way to this false understanding of eternal hope is very spacious. It communicates a sense of ease, a sense of ease. Verse 13 says, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and here it is, and the way is easy, and the way is easy. A more literal translation that I think is helpful, um, I think the NAS translates this a little more a little more direct, and it says, enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad. All right? The usage of this word translated as broad also conveys a sense of ease, and that's why the ESV uses it here. 
But it is easy to walk on the path of presumed righteousness. Many believe that there are multiple ways to righteousness, and this goes way beyond just other religions like we just touched upon. Um, some profess themselves as followers of the way of Christ and have been deceived by, light, by a life of ease. Uh, they believe there are multiple ways to Christ leading to life. For example, many, many believe that they are saved by Christ if they stand up for the marginalized. Right? If they do good, if they help the oppressed, if they live the example of Christ, then they are living the Christian life. And I'm not saying that helping those struggling is a bad thing, it's, or that it's not even commanded in Scripture, but when that becomes your hope for salvation, you are missing true saving faith in the redemptive work of Christ. You see, it is easy to live a masked form of unrighteousness. It's a common theme throughout the Sermon on the Mount Um, One common theme that comes up over and over again is that Christ addresses the false righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. You see, in in that time, the Pharisees and scribes said you could live in a way to uphold the law perfectly. And they lived in a way to showcase their perfection, to say, hey, you can live perfectly and this this is how you are to do it. But they missed the picture. You see, the law points toward perfection internally, and as a result, that should be displayed externally. And this perfection is perfection that only comes, only comes from God. And when our hearts are changed to be faithful to God's word, then our actions follow. So when living like the Pharisees, with your righteousness on the outside, life becomes a grounds for self-enjoyment. And self-enjoyment is an easy way of life, right? You tend to live for yourself, and you care about how others perceive your so-called righteousness, This is the cause for the message of Matthew chapter 6. In verse 1, and it carries throughout the entire chapter, the the chapter right before this, in verse 1 Christ says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. You see, unrighteous living is natural. A sinful life, a sinful lifestyle is pleasurable. To live in a way where spiritual matters and true self-evaluation can be placed on a shelf is a life of ease. To hear the praises of the world around you is an enjoyable road to take. To fend for ourselves is the way of our deceitful hearts. And that is why Christ presents this warning. For our hearts point us in this direction. Our hearts point us in the path of ease, in the wide gate every time. Without Christ's intervention, we choose the simple road Every single time, for that is the moral corruption to which we are bound. Finally, in verse 13, we see the culmination of this easy route. All right? The way is simple, the path is broad, but its outcome is deceitful. The way is simple, the path is broad, but its outcome is deceitful. Look with me again at verse 13. It says, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide. And the way is easy that leads to destruction. That leads to destruction. In the end, this path is deceptive. It promises life. It promises heaven. It promises an eternal state of glory. It promises that good works must lead to this glory, but its true end is eternal ruin. Unrighteousness leads to eternal damnation. It leads to separation from the holy God. And while the journey may be enjoyable, the pleasures only last a lifetime here on earth. The pleasures of unrighteousness are ultimately fleeting. So beware ease, beware comfort, beware the wide path. 
Moving along to verse 14, um, in this verse, in this other route, we see how the narrow gate contrasts very noticeably with this wide gate. While it may be difficult, the pressed and difficult avenue is the only way unto true eternal life. While it may be difficult, the pressed avenue is the only way unto true eternal life. Look with me at the whole of verse 14. It says, For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. So what do we see in this verse? Well, first we see that the gate is very thin. It's very thin. Verse 14 says, For the gate is narrow. This is not a large, very large, omnibus gate which is seen from afar, like that gate in India. This entrance does not stand atop a mountain for all to look at and say, that must clearly be the way unto eternal life. No, but a narrow gate is difficult to find. Only few enter by it. The end of verse 14 says, and those who find it are few. So what is this narrow gate, and what is the imagery behind it? Well, Christ is the narrow gate. Only by him can sinners be saved from the consequences of their sins and enter into eternal life. Our call to worship this morning was found in John chapter 10, verse 9. It says, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pleasure. See, only by Christ is the sinner saved. These other paths, these easier roads, these larger gates deceive the world, saying to look here for salvation. Look here to obtain Eternal glory. Why are they so attractive? Um, Because the way into salvation by these routes rests in oneself. That's the ultimate reason, right? These other routes rests in oneself for salvation. They're saying, if I can follow these rules, then eternal life is mine. If I do what is good for those around me, then eternal life is mine. If I live like Christ, if I possess Christ-like qualities, then certainly eternal life shall be mine. But what does the Word of God say? Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And what does that cost? Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. You see, the the way into eternal life is not by anything we can do, but what Christ has redemptively done on the cross. It's a rejection of one's own ability and a reliance. It's a trust, a hope in the promise that the narrow gate of Jesus Christ leads to eternal life. And because rejecting oneself and confessing transgression is so against our sinful nature, it's so opposite to what what our world shows, to what we want to do, this gate is extremely hard to find by, by many, many people. And that is why Christ says in Matthew chapter 19, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. My need for me, my need for the edification of myself is a block that unfortunately many cannot overcome. Therefore the gate is narrow. For nothing, no ego, no possession can go with you. Moving along in verse 14, we see that the true way is troubling. It's very restricted. Matthew 7:14 says, "For the narrow gate or for the gate is narrow, and here it is, and the way is hard." The way is hard. The literal meaning of this word hard, translated as hard, is to be pressed. It's to be persecuted and afflicted. Now, I was reading an article that I thought was quite interesting and fitting for this particular picture. 
of a, of a difficult, of a pressed away. It was about cave explorers and the incredible conditions they venture into all for the sake of fun. And in this particular article, it talked about individuals who venture so deep into caves that they have to literally contort their bodies just to keep going. It talked about how sometimes these cavers go through spaces that are the size of a, of a dog door. You know, the, do- the doors that are on a normal human door for dogs, they, they have to squeeze through crevices that, that large. And many times, many times they get stuck to the point where they have to take off articles of clothing just to squeeze deeper and deeper into caves, thousands and thousands of feet below the Earth's surface. And oftentimes, this leaves them very, very bloody, bleeding. Um, It leaves their skin torn just for the sake of adventure. And that's the picture here. Intense pressure, right? And pressure to the point of being crushed. That's, That's how narrow this way is. And you know, we see this pressure every day in our Christian lives. The pressure to sin, the pressure to live contrary to our righteous calling. And while we have been saved and justified, we still struggle with the troubles of sin. Right? To walk this path that Christ commands is to walk contrary to our sinful nature. It is difficult to take the pressed away. But the imagery of this hard road does not end there. For the word translated as hard also conveys the idea of being afflicted and persecuted. You see, the true path to eternal life is not smooth sailing. It is troubling. It brings about affliction and worldly opposition. And why is that? It is because it goes against the culture and worldly religious ways. Those who travel will face opposition from those on the path of ease. In the very beginning of the Sermon, of, of, uh, the sermon on the Mount, Christ declares his followers as standing in favor with God, and he outlines characteristics of true believers in what are known as the Beatitudes. Christ presents characteristics of true followers of himself, and because they are his followers, they stand in favor with God. That's, that's the big idea of the Beatitudes. And what is interesting is the very last Beatitude that is presented. All right? This is what Christ declares. He says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. You see, being afflicted and mocked for your beliefs defines, it defines us as Christians. It's who we are. And the imagery of the afflicted and troubling path speaks to the opposition that we will face. When we follow the standards of God, opposition will arise. When we commit our lives to the will of God, the world will scoff. And why is that? What is so offensive about following God? Why does the gospel and kingdom of of Christ stir up strife? The answer to this is the depravity of mankind. Before the Holy Spirit opened believers' eyes to the beauty of the gospel, we always chose sin. Ten out of ten times when we were presented with good versus wrong, We sought selfishness and rebellion. We we chose the wrong against our Creator. So we should not be surprised when we, as little Christs, are harassed and harmed for following the polar opposite of what the world follows. But what's interesting, all right, all throughout Scripture, all right, in the midst of this troubling path, Christ gives us reassurance. God gives us the help of the Holy Spirit to endure. In John chapter 14, verses 26 through 27, it reads, Christ says, But the Helper, 
the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives, not as the world gives do I give it to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. All right? We don't have to be afraid. Our hearts do not need to be troubled. Christ does not leave us to walk this path alone. But he gives us aid to be obedient, to be faithful, and to endure on the troubled path. Moving along, we see that the narrow, path, the narrow gate and the hard way are found by a minority. The end of verse 14 says, those who find it are few. It's not a popular path by any means. You know, there, there are a lot of people out there searching. All right? We have all heard that phrase, all right, or the phrase that someone is seeking religion or, or spiritual matters. matters. They, are, they are searching. Right? They are searching for what could be the real and the true way into eternal life. They're not quite sure what is the correct path, but they are intellectually processing what could be the right path. And sadly, many conclude that all roads have to lead to glory, that all roads must lead to heaven. If God is a good and loving God, everyone's going to get to heaven. They may know the gospel, they may know the story of Christ inside and out, but they see the oppression Christ and his followers went through and conclude that it would be easier to take any path but that in their spiritual pilgrimage. It would be easier to just live in the way they want and trust that a loving God will send them to heaven. However, we know that apart from God's intervention, men will choose ease over oppression, and they are bound to destruction. Finally, while the gate is narrow and the way is hard, its outcome is eternal life. It's eternal life. Look with me at verse 14 one last time. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. That leads to life. Only by Christ can a sinner be restored to favor with God and receive life eternal. In comparison, the hardships of the afflicted path do not compare to the riches of eternal glory. Think back to that image I gave of the cavers. Think how they they bleed, right? They endure dark, very, very cold, claustrophobic environments, all for the sake of adventure. And what's the reasoning behind it? Why do they do it? And what's the thrill of going out there and venturing into these caves? And the reason they give, or the reason they do this, is to go further than any human had been before. That's why they squeeze through the, these crevices, these, these tiny holes. It's to go further than any human had before. It's the thrill of the adventure. It's the adrenaline of the glory ahead that drives them. And that is what motivates these cavers to persevere amidst the perceived impossibilities of the path before them. A similar outcome, the hope for eternal life with our Master forever, should motivate us to endure and live faithfully in obedience to God. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17 and 18, it reads, For this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. May we strive through the oppressed road for the sake of glory. And as we, as we look to conclude this morning, I have three points of application. Three points of application. And the first comes directly from the first statement Christ gives us in verse 13. He says, to begin this, he says, enter 
by the narrow gate. So my plea to you this morning is simply listen to Christ's warning. Do not be deceived. I opened with a story of how I was on a path that I thought would lead to glory. I thought an image of a deer would be impressive and bring honor. But I was deceived. It, it led to a dead end, and it led to, to many, other, many other things that I wish um, I had not gone down. But it led to a dead end. And I beg you, if you are on a false path this morning to eternal life, don't reach the end. All right? Don't get to the end and realize that you have been deceived. If you have not confessed your sins and put your faith in the saving and cleansing power of Christ's blood, I beg you to do it today. That is the only way to restore favor with God and escape the consequences of sin, both in this life and in the life to come. Repent and trust in God. And you may be sitting here this morning thinking that you are already a part of the kingdom, right? I ask you, if you're, you're in that boat, you know, what does your path look like? What kind of path are you on at this moment? Is it afflicting? Do you face the pressures of society? Do you see forms of persecution and mockery in your life? If not, if the answer is no, let Christ's warning be forefront. Examine yourself. Really consider if you are part of the family of God. And may we all analyze how dedicated we are to Christ. And that leads me into my second point for this morning. The second point of application is this. How far are you willing to go? How far are you willing to go down this path? You know, the disciples and many, many brothers and sisters around the world, they face a lifetime of oppression. They are willing to remain loyal to the point of death, loyal to Christ to the point of death. You know, in the United States, we don't face hostility in the same way. But as the scriptures clearly lay out, we do and will face hardships for our beliefs. This may seem extreme, but what if you are threatened with death one day? Or what if you're threatened with jail time? Or what will your response be to Christ then? Will you stay loyal? Or maybe on a scale that hits a little closer to home, what will you do when your job is threatened? What if friendships are threatened to be severed due to your faith? Or simply, how will you respond to a joke? Do you remain loyal, or does fear of rejection dictate your reaction? I think all of the answers to these questions help answer the question of what path you are on. When you, when you put these situations in comparison to being martyred for your faith, they seem to pale in comparison. But I think to answer the question of how far you are willing to go is to really answer the question, what does Christ mean to you? What does Christ mean to you? Is Christ king of your heart, or is Christ on a weekly to-do list? If Christ is nothing more than a habit, and going to church is simply a weekly chore, persecution, unfortunately, persecution, it it will weed you out. Forget risking your life for Christ. Uh, A joke will be something you seek to avoid, and acceptance in society will be your desire. It will be your ultimate goal. And if you are in that camp, I beg you, let Christ be king of your life. Let Christ be king of your life. Let the pursuit of righteousness be what drives you day in and day out. Persecution should be viewed as a means of rejoicing, to be counted worthy of being part of the kingdom of God. Let Christ be Lord of your life. And what about when we fail, as we all do? Right? We're all sinners. We all fail. What are we to do when we are unfaithful? What do we do when we hop on the easy path for a season of time, for a season in life, when we, we join in that easy path? 
The answer to that is that we have a God who is faithful, a God who will forgive and restore us to boldness. We have a God who uplifts us even when we reject him to others. Let us be quick to seek forgiveness and to pray for a heart that will not only accept persecution, but rejoice in it. For note, for that is an assurance that we are on the correct path following Christ. My final point of application is something that we had not yet touched upon, but I think it's, I think it's extremely important. Um, these verses are actually in an active tense, right? If we were to read verse 13 literally, all right, at the end it says this. I'll read the beginning and then let's focus on the end. It says, Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way leading to destruction. And, and here it is. It says, Many are those entering through it. Many are those entering through it. The world is lost. Mankind is continually choosing the way unto death. Jude, verses 22 and 23 read, And have mercy on those who doubt, save others by snatching them out of the fire. I love that picture there, snatching them out of the fire, to seize them by force, right? for they are walking to eternal death. May we have a heart for the lost. May we steal and carry them from that deceitful path of ease. And to close, I would just like to say, may God help us all and give us boldness to persevere on the narrow path, on the narrow way before us. Let's close in a word of prayer. Dear Lord, I, I thank you for this day. Thank you for the opportunity to come to your house to, uh, to worship and glorify you. I just pray as we uh, go throughout our day-to-day lives that we'll really analyze what path we are on. We will, we will consider if we are worthy servants of you. And I pray that, you know, when the path does get hard, when it, when it, when the trials do come and the trials are hard, I pray that we will rest in your promises that you give us reassurance that, that your yoke is easy, your burden is light, I, and ultimately it gives us rest for our soul. I pray that that peace will just stay over us and that we will, will recognize that and hold on to that, knowing that we are glorifying our Lord and our Savior. And I pray for uh, just the rest of the week that we will be bold for you bold for you. And for those that are not saved here this morning, I pray that you will work in their hearts, that you will stir in them a, a spirit of just needing you, a spirit of uh, recognition that they, they are sinners and, and they are in need of a Savior. I pray that your spirit will be at work, and that you'll bring more and more into your kingdom. And it's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.